Would you stand with us, please? Stretch out those legs as Noah comes this morning to read to us as we continue in our study of the kings. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of you, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. You may be seated. Certainly by now, many of you have probably become familiar with the phenomenon that is known as Banksy. Banksy is an artist who all over the world has left his mark or her mark or their mark. Nobody, nobody really knows who Banksy is on buildings all over the world. And I thought that one of the most recent Banksy contributions to our culture and pop culture all over the world was fitting as a way to begin the message today. This one is called Achu. And I don't know how you feel, but in the COVID era, it makes me a little uncomfortable seeing this sweet older lady sneezing but Banksy chose this location for a reason to sort of give the feel with the architecture around that there's more happening here than meets the eye on this strange street in the United Kingdom and what I find really interesting about this is that the folks on whose home Banksy painted this mural were actually selling their house at the time it was listed for sale they had it listed for around $400,000, and within hours of the Banksy being discovered, they were getting offers for up to $5 million. Isn't it amazing how just a little picture 
a part of pop culture, which is much more about pop culture than art, I think is the Banksy phenomenon, could add a 10x, more than a 10x value to the home. As we talk about this period of the kings and really throughout our story of the kings, we're going to see how often the prophets have a major role. And in the stories of Saul and of David here in the beginning, it's the prophet Samuel who is like a kingmaker. And God uses him, commissions him to anoint these men as kings. And the moment that the prophet's anointing, the blessing that turns into an anointing of the Holy Spirit is placed on them, their value shoots up incredibly. All of a sudden, they go from being just regular old young guys to being the anointed kings or future kings of Israel. And now everybody is paying attention to them. As we get through later on into the stories of the prophets, you're going to see sometimes prophets anointing or passing their mantle to another prophet who's going to secede them. And sometimes that anointing, that passing of the torch, isn't necessarily a great thing for the future king or prophet. It guarantees them a life of suffering and hardship. But it's the role of the prophet to, to place his hands, his leadership on the person, to anoint them, to pass on to them the great responsibility that God has given, to add tremendous value to who they are and what they do. As we talk about the stories of the kings here in the Hebrew Scriptures, as I said last week, if there's one part of the Bible, one part of the Old Testament that we probably know the least it's probably the stories of the kings. But if you were to ask most people if they could name one king of Israel, most likely most people could come up with the name King David. And because of that, and because there are so many chapters in First and Second Samuel, and also in the books of Kings and Chronicles that talk about David, there is no way we can do David and his story in just one week. So we're going to have to stretch this out a little bit, and I think you'll be glad that we're doing that. And today, rather than talking about King David, we're going to talk about David the Anointed One before he became crowned as the king when he was anointed as king. And today's message, instead of being so much more about the kings and the nation and the culture, I hope you'll hear that this one is meant to be a little bit personal. And that as we relate a little bit to David, who obviously, even as we read in Acts a little bit ago, had this incredible role that God had prepared for him in the big story of Scripture and in the big story of all that God has been doing in creation in the universe from the beginning. It all started with a little shepherd boy who had to experience his own journey, his own roller coaster ride as he transitioned from being the anointed king to the crowned king. But we begin with what we read this morning when David was anointed. The moment that Samuel is now brought into the life of David, just as Samuel's life and role as a prophet was intertwined with Saul, so too now it's going to be intertwined with David. But this story, this chapter, doesn't begin with celebrating a new king. It begins with grief and with mourning. As Samuel is grieving Saul's demise, actively mourning what has become of the current king, King Saul. And you might wonder why. Why is Samuel grieving so much? Well, I think it's because he had invested so much in Saul. He'd been a part of Saul's story from the beginning, and, and watching Saul fail 
perhaps for Samuel felt like it was his own failure. You've probably felt like that before. You can understand when, when you invest so much in a person, or maybe they come and seek your counsel and they don't follow it, or maybe you've tried your best to help steer them in the right direction, but they just seem intent on going the other way, and sometimes it's hard to not take that personally. And Samuel is actively mourning and grieving what has happened with Saul. But I love the way God says this to him in the Hebrew. He doesn't say to Samuel, I'm thinking about rejecting Saul. He doesn't say to Samuel, I'm in the process of rejecting Saul. He uses the perfect in terms of Hebrew grammar, and he says, it's already done, Samuel. Saul has already been rejected. I've already rejected him. It's time to move on. It's time to take the next step. And the next step is sending Samuel on to another place to anoint a new king. And, and don't miss the awkwardness of this. To anoint a new king even as the existing king lives and is reigning on the throne. So, of course, Samuel says, how can I go? We all know Saul is becoming more unhinged every single day. If he hears about it, certainly he will want to kill me. God gave Samuel a strategy. He said, I want you to go to a little town called Bethlehem. We've heard of that town, right? Isn't it amazing how this little town plays such an important role throughout the Bible, and especially will, about a thousand years from this moment? I'm sending you to Bethlehem to the household of a man named Jesse. And here's the strategy. Go to Jesse, to his family, and say, I'm here to help you all in, in performing a sacrifice. And so Samuel did exactly what the Lord told him to do. He went to Bethlehem. He assured them he came in peace. He consecrated them. He blessed them. He prepared them for the sacrifice. And then what began happening next is, was like a parade of Jesse's sons before the prophet Samuel began with Eliab, and, and when Samuel sees Eliab, he thinks, oh boy, this one, the oldest, he must be the one. It's, it's almost like the description of Saul. Saul was good-looking, he was a head taller than everyone else, and, and Eliab was impressive. But God said, it's, it's not him. And what God says to Samuel here, really for us, as we go through this series throughout the summer, this becomes our diagnostic tool. This is God's description of how we can know and discern which king does right in the eyes of the Lord and why do so many of these other kings do evil in the sight of the Lord. And the way God describes this process, what he's looking for in a godly leader, a godly servant, a godly king, he says, Samuel, make no mistake, and this is literally what the Hebrew says, for not as man sees does God see. For man sees with the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. So Eliab's not the one. Abinadab's not the one. Shammah's not the one. Seven sons all along come in front of Samuel. Thankfully, Jesse had another son. Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest. Don't you love how it seems like David is an afterthought? Well, they're still the youngest. He's about 14, 15 years old. He's out in the field tending his sheep. And Samuel says, go get him. We will not sit down until he arrives. 
Sure enough, when David arrives on the scene, God says yes. This is the one. Rise and anoint him. And so Samuel does what he came to do. He anoints David. Even before Saul has left the throne, David is anointed as the next king of Israel. And the end of verse 13 is so important to understand what happens next in David's life. Samuel says, From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now I want you to think before a moment, before we move on, wouldn't it be nice if we could do what God does, if we could see as God sees, and we could always see right into the heart of a person to know what motivates them. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that tool at our disposal before we went to vote? Wouldn't it be nice if we had that tool at our disposal before we chose the next leader of a church or a company or a city or whatever it might be? But God sees into the heart in a way we can't. And the more important question this morning is not about seeing into the heart of others, but as God sees into your heart today, what does he see? And who does he see? Does he see a man or a woman, a student, a child, who is a person after his own heart? Or does he see someone who is still furiously pursuing self at every turn? That was Saul. Saul was all about Saul, and it was clear, especially in those early days of his reign. But there was something different in David. And when that anointing from Samuel came upon him, it wasn't just a blessing, it was the Holy Spirit that came powerful upon, powerfully upon David from that time forward. And what begins next, and I'll just show you a couple of examples here in this part, David has a meteoric rise. Even before he's king, it's like everything David does is met with success. And everywhere he goes, being led by the Holy Spirit, whatever he sets out to do, he does it, he accomplishes the goal, and sometimes even more than imagine. The Spirit of the Lord was on powerfully, on David powerfully from that day forward. But look at what the very next verse says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. I imagine this anointing of God as God's hand on the reign, on the leadership of the king. And when that anointing came on David, just as God had told Samuel, simultaneously, it departed from Saul, and God's hand was no longer on his leadership. And read further in 1 Samuel, and you'll see the evidence of that to be true. Not only did the Spirit of the Lord depart from Saul, but God allowed a spirit of evil to torment him. And this is a tough verse, and we can't spend the time on it that we should. Those of you who were here Wednesday night know we talked about it a lot. But let me simply say this, Saul had already let the enemy's foot in the door. It wasn't a big jump for him to be surrounded and tormented by a spirit of evil as he had already been going down this road. As we said last week, sometimes as discipline, the Lord will let us bring calamity on ourselves. And that's exactly what happened with Saul. And Saul was so, so tormented by this spirit that here, just as Samuel and Saul's lives had been intertwined, and now Samuel and David's lives were intertwined, now Saul and David come together. Somebody comes up with a plan. Saul, when you're being tormented by this spirit of evil, maybe if somebody plays soothing music in your presence, 
then you'll relax and the spirit won't bother you so much and who else do they go out and find to play music in the king's court but david and david comes in and he begins to play his lyre and as he does so the spirit of evil leaves saul alone now don't miss what's happening here it's all tied back to what we read in verse 13 the spirit of the lord was powerfully on david David wasn't just playing his music beautifully. David, filled with the Spirit, was worshiping. And where the Holy Spirit was present in David's worship, the spirit of evil departed. And so Saul says, I've got to keep this David guy around. He says to Jesse, your son has pleased me, but not only that, I'm going to make him an armor bearer in the royal court. And David starts to find his first level of success the next part of david's meteoric rise this is a story we know well in first samuel 17 when david runs to the battle to meet goliath you get a sense in this story that saul has not been fulfilling his responsibility saul should have been the one to lead the armies out under the lord's leadership and do what he was called to do but instead everybody's just hanging back and doing nothing Look at the words David uses, what he declares when he approaches Goliath. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And we know how this ends. David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the giant and he killed him. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Probably the story about David everybody knows most. But look past for a moment the detail and the victory to the heart. David's meteoric rise is completely grounded at this point in his relationship with God. If he is to have a victory, it will be a victory for the Lord and not for himself. And Samuel continues in chapter 18, from this point on, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was successful. So much so that Saul made him a high-ranking member of the army. David was also gaining favor with the men and others. Everyone, everybody wanted to be around David, and at the same time, nobody wanted to be around Saul. And they come home from battle against the Philistines, and the women come out, and they're singing, and they're dancing, and they're playing their instruments. And as they sang, they said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Now things are more than awkward. Saul perceives David as a clear threat to his power. Saul says, how can they say this? David, his tens of thousands, Saul, his thousands. Surely this will not end except that David gets my kingdom. So from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Even more than that, we move into the next phase of David's life before he became the king. Saul began to furiously pursue David to hunt him down, to kill him. As we said last week, Saul became obsessed with David, and it drove him mad. Yet back to David, a man after God's own heart, a man about whom God said, he will do everything I ask him to do. 
from his meteoric rise, for almost 15 years, David had to wait. And his wait was a long and dangerous one. As Saul pursued him, as David fled to the desert, as he constantly was on the run, hiding from place to place, God was with him. And I want you to hear this. I'm going to say it twice because it's important. God was not only with David, but he used this period of waiting and struggling, and at times what must have felt like just barely surviving for David. He used this period in David's life for David's own good. And he also used it as a time of preparation for much greater responsibility that would come on him soon. And in the midst of this, one of the other things that strikes me is that as, as David was waiting and struggling, barely surviving, he remained faithful. He remained a man of faith, and he remained faithful to God. And we see this no more clearly, David's integrity, his character, his heart for the Lord, than the two different times when he had the opportunity to kill Saul. Twice David had the, the chance, the opportunity to strike his enemy before his enemy would strike him. To kill Saul before Saul could kill him. And he doesn't do it. The first comes in 1 Samuel chapter 24. This story has a little bit of an entertainment element to it. David's out in a place called En Gedi in the desert. By the way, if you go to Israel with us next year, we go to En Gedi, and you can see so clearly where and, and how all of this must have taken place. But David goes and hides out in En Gedi, and so Saul takes a huge group of soldiers with him to go hunt David down. Along the way, Saul starts to have that feeling. You know that feeling? He needs to relieve himself. And so he leaves his men behind, he goes into a cave to relieve himself, and unbeknownst to Saul, David and his men, his soldiers, are hiding in the back of that very cave. So, of course, the men of David begin saying to him, this is not a coincidence, David. The Lord has handed your enemy over to you. This is your moment. This is your chance to strike first. And so David crept up on Saul. We might imagine he crept up on him to kill him, but what I see is a moment of conviction. David realized this wasn't what God had commanded him and called him to do, the person that God had commanded and called him to be. Rather than harming Saul, he cut off a piece of his robe. And David was so overcome with conviction for doing what he did. He said, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed that he immediately went out to Saul, and he confessed. And he said, Lord, King, forgive me for what I have done, and make no mistake, I am not against you. I'm your ally, and what I've pledged to do as your servant, I plan to fulfill. And so for a while, Saul for, forgave him, maybe even considered that David meant no harm to his rule, but then things got worse again. That long, dangerous wait continued. In 1 Samuel 26, again, Saul went out to the desert searching for David. This time they're in a place called Ziph. And once again, Saul unknowingly ends up right under David's nose. This time they had set up camp, right near where David and his men were. 
And at this point, by the way, Saul had abandoned all reason. And he no longer would listen to any wise counsel. Samuel was gone, and no one else could speak to Saul. So Saul sets up camp in a place that was unwise to sleep. And once again, David's men tried to convince him to kill Saul. David and Abishai went to the army by night. They went into the camp. And there was Saul laying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground right near his head. If ever there was an opportunity to make it look like one of Saul's own men had done this, here that opportunity was. Abner, his general, and the soldiers were all lying around him. They were asleep. And Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. And don't you love this? I won't have to try twice. I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So, David said, let's get the spear, let's take the water jug near his head, and let's go. And so that's what they did. They took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head, and they left, and no one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. And don't miss here in this last part of this story that connection all the way back to the first part we read. The Spirit of the Lord was on, da on David in a, in a mighty powerful way from that day forward. And here God's protection, even as they crept into the camp of Saul, the king, David's own enemy, the Lord made sure that they were able to leave safely, that no one woke up. God was faithful. David was faithful. God was with David, but listen, David was with God. And we see here in his heart, in his life, even during this long, dangerous wait, the evidence that he had a heart for the Lord. So today, again, I said I'd say it twice. Maybe you need to be reminded that just as God used this period in David's life of waiting and struggling, barely surviving for David's good, that it was a time of, of preparation for something much bigger down the road. Maybe today, if you find yourself in your own period of waiting, you need to hear that word. Maybe for you, this is a time of preparation. That God is preparing you, strengthening you, training you, that this season is not just about this moment, but for something important God has for you in the future. And listen, I don't say that to minimize your struggle. I don't say that assuming I know what you're dealing with. And I certainly don't say it in a condescending way because believe you me, I've had to learn this lesson many times. But maybe the season of waiting is a season of preparation. And this morning as I bring us to a close, maybe also this psalm that David wrote will be an encouragement to you as you wait. And if you're not in a moment or period of waiting now, then write this down because you probably will be at some point in the future. And listen to the words that David wrote, but even more so, these are a prayer. These are words from a prayer. And the title of this psalm, Psalm 142, says, The Prayer of David When He Was in the Cave. So here you're hearing the words David prayed. 
while his life was in danger in the darkness of the cave as he wait and as he hid. Hear these words as a prayer to the Lord. I cry out with my voice to the Lord. With my voice I implore the Lord for compassion. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. But when my spirit felt weak within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me favorably. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So give your attention to my cry, for I have been brought very low. Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison so that I might give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will look after me. God was with David. David was with God. And would you hear this morning both an invitation and a challenge? First, the invitation going back to what we read in the book of Acts. Would you hear the invitation that because of what God did through the line of David to the emergence of Christ our Savior and Lord, that everyone who believes upon the name of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will receive forgiveness of sins. And would you hear that invitation today that when you receive that forgiveness of sins, you will be set free. You will be freed from your sin. And if you've never taken that step, if today instead of feeling free, you feel all tied up, you feel completely bound and oppressed, by the sin in your life would you today hear this invitation to come to christ the son of david and to receive forgiveness for your sins but then here's the challenge god said about david he's a person after my own heart he will do whatever it is i ask him to do as god looks into your heart this morning and mine what does he see and who does he see Does he see a person who will do whatever he asks you to do? Does he see a man, a woman, a student, a child who will do whatever he asks you to do? Because listen, in this moment in which we're living, more than I can ever think of in my time on this earth, the church needs to be filled with people who are willing to stand and say, no matter what, I am a person who will do what he asks me to do. Will you see in the life of David, the character of David, not just a man, but God's faithfulness on display? And will you heed that challenge this morning to be the kind of person who does whatever he asks you to do? As a part of this invitation here, as we move into this time, would you just simply be willing to say yes to the Lord today? Whatever it is you want for me to do, I'll do it. Just as God was with David, God is with us. And just as David was with God, may we also be one together in Christ Jesus, following the Lord faithfully.